Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 26. Father, thank you for today, for your grace and your mercies that are new every morning. And we look forward to meeting with you together as a family, praising you and studying your word at your feet. And Lord, we want to hear from you individually, but Lord, we want to hear from you congregationally, that you would guide this congregation, guide us in all truth, guide us in how we are to reach our community, to love those around us that don't know your love. So Lord, this morning, speak to us how we're to live this life for your glory for your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. I've titled this message, The Joy of Ministry, yet it's just focusing upon the joy, the joy that you and I should have in this life. Joy and happiness are often confused. I don't know about you, but this time of year, people begin to rush, people begin to make demands, people begin to get impatient, and and certainly when those things happen around you, you can become frustrated. You can become frustrated, even lose joy. Now, frustration is not wrong. Frustration is just something that's normal that happens, but how we react to that frustration determine whether we lose our joy or not. Even in the midst of a trial, even in the midst of the storm, we should have a joy. Knowing that that hope of eternity is seeing our family and friends will never be taken away. And that God's on the throne in the midst of all those circumstances. This is what makes us a witness, a living stone to those around us. This is what will produce a joy in our life when we see that our life, as we continue, press on, walking, looking, trusting to Jesus, that our lives become a testimony and others begin to take steps of faith that they never have done before. Well, again, this is the joy of ministry. And either today you're a minister or you're not even a believer. See, I may minister the Word of God. I may have a big M in front of my name or pastor. But you too are a minister. You too are an ambassador called by Christ. You too are to comfort others with the comfort you've received. And this is where we find our joy. And we turn and we minister to those around us, whether it be here in the congregation of the saints It'd be in our workplaces. It'd be in the hospitals. It'd be in our neighborhoods. It'd be, again, whether it's on the baseball field or the football field, that that we have chose to put Christ first, and he shines through us. We're truly that light that God's called us to be. Well, there's an old saying you're probably familiar with. It says, your trials will either make you better or they'll make you bitter. Certainly that's true. You recognize that and those around you, maybe your own life. Are you better because of the trials you've gone through? Do you consider it a joy when you encounter various trials? Knowing the testing of faith produces endurance and or to let endurance have that perfect work. That's what's important. That's where you and I grow. That's where the the rubber meets the road for every believer because we know that God is in control of the outcome. Apostle Paul is an incredible example of, of a life that is tried and tested, confronted day in and day out. And yet he is a man who became better, better, a better servant through the trials. He was a man that knew that sovereignty of God. He was a man that knew that God used every situation in his life, and his part was simply to surrender, to look, to trust, to anticipate and expect 
that out of this dark situation, out of this most difficult, painful thing, God, you're going to use this for good. And he chose to let God use it for good in his life. Well, look with me in verses 12 and 13 in our text. We're going to see really one of Paul's joys is because of the progress of the gospel. Now, in verse 12, he writes, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well-known throughout the whole praetorium guard and to everyone else. First of all, Paul in verse 12 is writing, I want you to know, brethren, he's speaking to the brethren, those in Philippi. He wants them to know what? If his condition, yes, he's in prison. Yes, he's in, in shackles. And he's not going on to grumble and murmur and, and describe the pain and the discomfort. But notice what he says. I want you to know, brother, these circumstances, my circumstances that I'm going through, they've turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. The very thing that seemed impossible is now a possibility, reaching people that he never thought he would reach. See, Paul's circumstances, what were they? Well, he was in prison, if you remember, for four years. First, he was in Caesarea for two years, and then two more years in Rome, where many scholars believe this is where this letter is being written from. Paul informs the Philippians about his situation. Yes, he's in prison, but he hasn't been silenced. You know, and his real joy was to magnify the king. His great joy was to focus upon the one who's called him and give him glory. Seems so fitting that we're in our text while we haven't started our, our Christmas section yet, and we will next week, that here, the Apostle Paul, chief desire is to glorify the King of Kings. Now, that's very hard sometimes, especially in tough situations that you and I might go through, but I don't think they were tougher than what Apostle Paul was going. One thing that the Apostle Paul knew was that God was on the throne. God was in control. God was able to use those circumstances for good and for his purpose and for his glory. Here the word of God was being spread as a result of Paul's imprisonment. God was using this situation out of what was dark situation. God is using it for good. I can't help but think back in the story of Joseph in the Old Testament when his brothers sold him into bondage and he ended up again in Egypt and through a series of situations, and I mean situations that were difficult and trials, he ends up in second command in Egypt and Later on, his brothers come down, and when he reveals himself to his brothers, he says, what you meant for evil, God used for good. Isn't that incredible? The enemy means to use things to hurt you, to destroy you, to inflict pain in your life, but God uses it for good. See, that is the Savior that we live for. He's the one that we worship because he is worthy of all worship. He's concerned about the outcome of the situation and he uses these things to make us, to conform us in the image of his own son. Well, Paul's rejoicing in the fact that his imprisonment was a advancing the gospel, not hindering the gospel. Now, it's interesting that word in the Greek progress describes not merely a, a moving ahead, a, a moving forward, but really the Greek indicates doing so against obstacles. And certainly Paul experienced hard and difficult obstacles. There was ground 
being made against all of the odds. Paul had that pioneering spirit, and that's what every believer should have is a pioneering spirit. Knowing that you and I are going places we've never been, God is looking to reveal his glory to you and to me and to a world, and we're simply those vessels. This idea of progress is, is like one who is going in the military and cutting a path, cutting the bush thicket away so others can follow. Paul was cutting that path. Paul was leading the way, the forces. Progress was happening that others would come into the kingdom. Others would be able to, to witness and testify who Jesus Christ is. Because of the work of Paul, others would step to the plate that never had. And that happens in your life when you choose to stand for Jesus Christ. When you choose to let Jesus Christ live through your life and look at your circumstances and say, God, what is it you're going to do? What is it you want to do in me and through me? And what is it you want me to see? And we begin to see his glory. Paul had that pioneering spirit. He, he cut that path. He seized the opportunity to advance the kingdom. He was clearing, the, again, the way for the gospel. He was infiltrating the ranks of the Roman army. You know, in order to do this, Paul had a, a, a personality, a belief, a faith that every believer should have. First of all, when he was writing the Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It was the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. Paul knew that the gospel had saved him, transformed him, changed him into a person he never thought he'd be. And he knew that the gospel itself was the power of God for salvation. Notice to everyone, not just a few, not just to a certain group of people, to everyone who would believe, to everyone who would trust and cry upon the name of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 9.16 also tells us about Paul. He says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Stop and think for a moment. When you are born again, when you're truly born again, that is. You wanted to read the word. You wanted to pray. You prayed about everything. And you wanted to tell everyone about Jesus. God instills that same spirit in every believer. Will either yield to it or will suppress that spirit. Paul knew it was his responsibility to, to preach the gospel and he knew that God not only instilled that desire in him, but God enabled him. He says, woe to me. It was a, it was a calling in his life. And that is a calling for every person within the body of Christ because we're called to go and make disciples. We're not an apostle like Paul. We're, we're not maybe cutting the path, but others have gone before us. I prepared the way for that next group. I knew of a church, and they planted the church, and it just didn't didn't take. This church was planted eight times. Eight different pastors tried to plant the church, but they were preparing the way. And when that ninth person came, not that he was better, but the ground had been prepared, and he experienced a harvest because of every man that had been involved before. One person sows the seed, another one waters, another one brings the harvest. And you, you and I may be just the one sowing the seed, just laying the foundation. Someone will come along and lay the harvest. Paul understood that, and Paul was excited. Excited because God was on the throne 
excited because he knew what God had done in his life. He wasn't ashamed of the gospel. He knew the power of God to salvation. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Later on in chapter 9 in 1 Corinthians, he says this. He says, I, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Paul says everything he did, I I, I do it for the sake of the gospel. I, I do it for the good news that people would understand and know. Know the God that I know, the Savior who saved me, that has forgiven my sins, who's given me a hope that the world does not offer. And he finished with that, and he says, so that I may become a, a fellow partaker of that gospel. I'm adding that word, but that's the context. Well, how do you become a partaker? You bring the good news of Jesus Christ. When we bring that good news, it just fills and overflows our life with a joy, especially when God allows us to see the work he's doing in someone's heart when they come into the kingdom. Paul simply surrendered his will to to God's will. He chose to remain faithful, and he endured the hardship all by God's grace. The irony of this whole thing, what what seemed to be so utterly um, impossible or, or defeat, turned out to be a victory in the hands of God. And all that Paul was going through was to advance that that gospel. And God had done it again. He had done the impossible again. And Paul's part was simple. Just remain faithful by God's grace. I think in the Gospel of John, it really gives us that clue because this is where I had to turn back. This is what I need to check myself out. Where am I at when that time comes? Is John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Again, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. The key is abiding, abiding in Christ. When you choose, and I choose, to abide in Christ, he abides in us. As the branch cannot bear fruit itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. And he's saying, you want to be a, have a fruitful life. You want to have abundant life, an overflowing life. You, you need to abide in me. And when I find myself and others find themselves not in that place, experience abundant joy. Abundant love. We're not biding in the place that we should. Verse 5 continues, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Just like a fruit on a tree. Like an orange. It just hangs at absorbing the sun, absorbing the light, drawing the nutrients from that tree. We too just hang in in Christ. No matter what those circumstances are, we hang in. We draw from him. We absorb the light of God's word. And you know what? A a piece of fruit does that. It absorbs all that sunlight, the orange, or those ruby red grapefruits you've seen that they're just really red inside and, and, and beautiful is because they hung in and they drew from the tree and the light produced that sweetness. And as you hang in and the light of God's word fills your light, the light from the brothers and sisters around you when you stay in fellowship fills your light. Your life, the fruit that will be produced in your life will be sweet and it will have seed in it. See, Paul was abiding. That's important to understand. Paul was not striving, but he was abiding. He just hung in just like a a piece of fruit ripening in its season. 
Paul simply continued to buy no matter what those circumstances were. For us, that means we need to stay focused, focused upon Christ, abiding in him. Why? Because it's all about Jesus. It's, it's all about the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news is the gospel. So we stay focused upon the king, the king of kings. And staying focused means to go and make disciples, teaching them to obey just as he's commanded. But how? We need to read the word, study the word, and pray, and ask God for opportunities to be used. It starts by sharing what you hear today or hearing on the radio, discussing it, talking it with others. If you don't take what you're hearing, what you're learning, you will lose it. But when you use it, watch and see how God moves. Look with me in verse 13. So that my imprisonment and the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Very significant number of people were saved. And it wasn't limited to to Caesar's household. See, these would have been the ones that were in this Praetorian Guard. It actually speaks of of everyone that's involved in the palace guard. Is actually what the the word would refer to. And it's only in the NASB that they use this Praetorian Guard. But that would not be limited to just... Caesar's family that would not uh, ju- that would include couriers and princes and judges and cooks and food tasters and musicians and custodians and builders and stablemen and soldiers and accountants. You know what it is? Everyone, everyone that was involved. The gospel wants to touch everyone. The gospel is meant to reach people. Now, within this large group, there are obviously there had been some that were already saved prior to his coming, but then there were those, those who were newly added to the number, those that were looking at Paul and, and seeing there's something different. They're, they're seeing that the Christianity, what Christianity looks like, one who's not willing to recant his beliefs, but stand firm on what he believes is the truth. Those were the ones that Paul led to Christ. That included the soldiers who were chained to him when he was a prisoner. Now, again, as I mentioned, that word Praetorian is palace guard. It it, it means the entire military headquarters. It means the people who are in the Praetorian and when you look at a Praetorian, just, just in, the, in the sense of the military people alone, there's 12 cohorts, possibly as many as a 1,000 soldiers each. In addition, all the palace workers of those that are in Caesar's court, there was a, a vast opportunity to reach. There's a world around us that Jesus Christ wants to reach. In Rome, Paul was in chains for Christ. And probably, as I mentioned, chained to a guard. Everything that indicates that big look is at Ephesians 6.20 on the screen for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul recognized he was in chains for Christ, He was ambassador, a representative, and every one of us are ambassador. Look around. There are vast opportunities. Just as one person reaches another, that becomes a vast number. I was thinking about this passage, and I was thinking about Jesus When he needed to go through Samaria, he was there going to reach the woman at the well. Let me read, and I'll show you what I mean. John 4, verse 35. Do you not say there are four months, and then comes the harvest? 
Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look, the field, they're white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows, another reaps, one is sent out to reap, for which you have not labored, others have labored, and you have not entered in. One of those keys to really rejoicing and experiencing the joy of the Lord is really to sow, to water, to reap, to be a a part of something much bigger than you and me. And we need to look around. The harvest is white. It's ripe. There's people here in our own community who never even heard the gospel message. Never even turned on Christian radio. And you and I may have several Bibles in our house gathered with dust on them. At the end of the book of Philippians in chapter 4, verse 22, and the book is coming to an end, Paul writes to all the saints, the all the saints greet you especially those in Caesar's household. Paul never would have reached these people if he was not in chains, if he were not in prison, if he was not going through what appeared to be a trial, the impossible. God was revealing his glory. Notice with me verse 14 in our text. And most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, and have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. I like this. Paul didn't grumble over his circumstances, but he seized those opportunities. He rejoiced over these opportunities to preach, to preach the gospel, the power of God unto salvation. And he was able to preach, and he preached to the palace guard. Paul's response to to these trials, the brethren around him, the brethren that were looking from a distance, as well as other believers, were all affected. For the brethren noticed they were trusting the Lord Trusting in the Lord because of his imprisonment. God was using not only what the unbelievers, but those within the body of Christ. What seemed to be trials were actually opportunities they saw. Paul rejoiced when, when others might have been grumbling. He rejoiced and seized the opportunities. His life was, was an example of a powerful witness of the gospel, how the gospel works and God's faithfulness to the persecuted children. Paul's imprisonment hadn't hindered the gospel, but it progressed the gospel. It became example of the sovereign hand of God on Paul in all the circumstances. And they saw the impossible become the impossible. You've seen, you've heard of those Syria, Iraq, Egypt, persecuted Christians, those in Sudan, and the list goes on of countries. They're not willing to recant. It seems a higher calling. But these people have come to the understanding that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. They have a hope, a hope that the world doesn't have. They're longing to go to be with the king, but until the king takes them, they faithfully proclaim the gospel message. Paul was a forerunner. Paul was the one who was cutting and preparing the way that others 
brothers and sisters that are being persecuted to are preparing the way for other brothers and sisters to share for you and for me. We see the same kind of spirit really in Peter and John. They were they were preaching again Christ Jesus. And they were commanded not to speak this. In fact, in Acts four, eighteen and twenty, notice what it says. And and when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. They had seen the risen, glorified Christ. They had not only seen him, they had touched him. They had walked with him. They had ate with him. And they couldn't do anything but tell others about him. They lived their lives with the anticipation that he was coming back and coming back soon for them. They had a joy. They trusted in the Lord. And just as, as again, that those believers around Paul were now able to trust and take steps of faith they never did, those that saw, again, Peter and John also took steps of faith. Well, there's another thing I want to show you in verses 15 through 18. And, and, and really, Paul's joy how God uses the, the foolishness of the enemy to produce joy in your life and my life. Look with me, verse 15. Some, to be sure, preaching Christ, even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel, and the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only then in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I, re I rejoice. An interesting passage, sometimes misunderstood. The first thing that I want to call your attention to is this fact that, that, that Paul knew that we should rejoice, and he was rejoicing. He was full of joy because Christ was being proclaimed. We're talking about evangelism. We're talking about this powerful witness. We're not talking about churches that might teach something else. We're talking about, again, the, those that are on TV that sometimes I cringe when I hear the things that they say that do not even line up with the Bible, but then all of a sudden they preach Jesus Christ, and they preach Jesus Christ crucified, and that he was the sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and they preach the pure gospel, and some of those do it with the pretense of greed. Some do it with power. But Paul was saying, in this case, he rejoiced because the gospel, the name of Jesus is being exalted, and salvation comes in no other name than Jesus Christ. This is He's not saying we should rejoice over someone who is doctrinally impure, but when people are evangelizing Christ, we should be rejoicing. He's in prison. They're looking for an opportunity to take advantage of him, to put him down, to mock him, to exalt themselves. But Paul was rejoicing because Jesus Christ was being preached. Paul knew that God was going to use those circumstances even though he couldn't. God is the one that raises up and God is the one that tears down. God is the judge. So with one of these groups, again, the motives, the attitudes of these distractors, they're wrong. They were preaching Christ, yes. They were envious of his, perhaps his apostolic power, his authority, perhaps his success, his giftedness. But man, they were breeding strife. None of us like strife. 
That word strife implies contention and conflict, which resulted when Paul's critics began discrediting him. Strife, though, stop and think. First Corinthians kind of describes something about it. Again, for you're still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, you're still fleshly. And you're not walking, are you not walking like mere men? Well, God takes this very seriously, strife. Strife is carnal, it's fleshly. Sometimes even a believer walks in strife, gossiping, talking about others. Man, when that happens, you need to step away, I need to step away. In fact, in a fellowship, if we have that, Proverbs reminds us how it needs to be dealt with. Whether it be in a congregation, it'd be in your relationships, drive out the scoffer. And contention will go. Even strife and dishonor will cease. It needs to be put away. But Paul was still praising God because the gospel is going out. But there was another group. I believe this group was the mature group. These were true believers. I can't speak who is and who isn't, but obviously look at the fruit of the light. But they were preaching out of goodwill. And that goodwill speaks of satisfaction and contentment. They were happy. They were happy, and they were supporters of Paul, and they agreed with his doctrine. They saw how it worked out. Verse 16 says, the latter do it out of love. They were motivated by love. And they knew that Paul was appointed for the defense of the gospel. He stood for the gospel. Paul's supporters motivated with just a a, a genuine infection for him and, and confidence of his virtue, his calling, no matter what they said. True believers that are mature have a discernment. So often you have in your life and my life seen people that that follow after this, tossed and turned of every winded doctrine, someone new went down, someone with a new promise, and you know this is not right. Or they hear something on, on YouTube or hear something here or there, and they begin, oh, it sounds so good, and begin to fall. It's just a mark of immaturity, a lack of biblical discernment. But God willing, as they go down that path, God will hone them, God will shape them, God will change them, and they too will mature. They demonstrated real love for Paul and a love and a joy because Christ was being proclaimed. And this was the gospel of truth. Now, Paul could have been depressed. Paul could have been discouraged or disillusioned, but he chose to focus on what God was doing. He instead regarded his imprisonment as as a pointed thing, something that God had called him to do. So often people say when things go wrong, there must be sin in their life. There was not sin in Paul's life to bring him this point. It was part of God's will and part of God's plan to reach people for Christ. David, King David, was being chased for a long time by Saul, and and God was using it, produced many of the Psalms, producing character with him. This is true in Paul. True in many people. Read again Hebrews chapter 11, this hall of faith and all they went through. They choose to press on one foot in front of the other. Again, in verse 17, it says the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition. They were wanting to exalt themselves rather than the pure motives. They were looking, look at that verse, looking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. This describes really, again, someone who is wanting, interested only in self-advancement. These people were like Philippians 1.10, that, that is the good ones that were behind him. These were people 
that were sincere and would be considered blameless until the day of Christ, but not those that were breeding the strife. Look with me, the the deliverance, that's in verses 19 through 20. It says, for I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness, Christ, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. You know what I love about this? Paul depended on the prayers of God's people. Look at verse 19. He says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul was looking to the prayer. He was thankful to God. He was joyful of it. He had the assurance that God was going to rescue him. And that's not talking about, again, salvation internal, but from this situation. God was using it, but God still had more to do in him and elsewhere, and we're going to see that in a moment. Paul knew that God's people were praying. And he knew that God was faithful and God would answer the prayer. Let me ask you a question. Who's depending on your prayer? I want to tell you one thing. I am so thankful, so encouraged, so full of joy when people come up to me and say, you know what? I pray for you daily. I pray for your walk. I pray that you'd speak in boldness. I pray that the Lord will bless you and make you a blessing to everyone around you. I covet those prayers. I long for those prayers. I thank God for those prayers. I can't do it on my own. You can't do it on your own. And I pray for each of you. I pray the same prayer. And sometimes in prayer, you know how God shows us and reveals something, and we begin to pray something, and we don't know why we pray, but it's the Spirit guiding and leading. Prayer is powerful. But do we pray the way we believe it's so powerful, so effective? Do we pray in that manner, with that hope? Let me ask you a question again. Who's depending on your prayer? And whose prayer are you depending upon? Paul knew God's people were praying, and he knew that God would answer it. And Paul rejoiced. He knew that he would experience uh, the deliverance, and that that term is salvation I mentioned, which just simply means well-being or escape. And it could refer to four different ways. And and one could be refer Paul's ultimate salvation, yes, but that's not the context. It alludes to the deliverance from this threatened execution that he was facing again, execution and deliverance from that. And, and certainly it could be a part of that. It could also mean, finally, they'd be vindicated from the emperor's ruling. He had been in jail for four years. He knew that he would go before again Caesar. But personally, while all those may be a little true in a sense, I think Paul was simply talking about the eventual release from prison, that he would fulfill that ministry, the groundwork would be done, that other Christians would be going and telling others about it, and God would move him and take him to a place he's never been to minister. And God would take him again to minister to those and build up the body of Christ. There was still a great need within the body of Christ. Notice with me in verse 20, we see the dedication. According to my earnest expectation hope, I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ, even now, as always, be exalted my body, whether by life or death. See, 
this is, as a believer, when we are born again, we're set apart for the glory of God. We're, we're saints, sanctified, set apart. And what we need to do is choose to dedicate our lives to Christ. Jesus said again, if anyone desire to come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross and follow daily. First of all, to deny ourselves speaks of dedication. To pick up our cross, that means that we will suffer things. And to do it daily means that we are to be devoted daily. Our devotion to him each and every day. Well, Paul only talks about this dedication. That he's living for Christ. See, Paul's ultimate goal is neither to live nor die, but to see Christ magnified regardless of what is happening in his life. Now, when we think about magnification, there's two thoughts that come, or two kinds. One is like microscopic, which which makes little things seem big. And certainly, of course, there's nothing little about the Lord. He is big. He is awesome. He is great. Then there's what we call telescopic magnification, which makes that which is big look even bigger and even closer. And the Lord Jesus Christ is so distant from this world of ours in this day. As the body of Christ, each Christian must be as, as mighty as a telescope in that sense of bringing the sinner in the sense of real nearness to Christ. Our lives should bring people close to see Christ. This is what Christ looks like. This is what Christ does. And Paul was so, so desirous, so determined that Christ be magnified that he dedicated his body to that end, whether it be by life or death. It was the controlling principle in his life. Notice the words, even now, as always. Referring to the good times and or the bad times. Paul purpose simply to magnify Christ. You know, I'm I'm encouraged by a passage in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter twelve, verses one through two. Let me read and I'll explain it and Share why I'm encouraged. This is therefore, since we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now the setting for this is that Hebrews 11 was the last chapter before this. It is this great hall of faith. Paul sees this picture, I, I, I'm, I'm getting this illusion, a cloud of witnesses, a cloud of men and women of faith that have gone before. They're in a stadium. And he's pressing on by faith. And they're cheering. They're encouraging him. Like a runner that would strip off all of his clothing to run. And anything that would entangle him, anything that would prevent him from running this race, get rid of these things and then fix their eyes upon Jesus. We have many that have gone before us that are cheering us. They're watching. Keep going. Get rid of this. Keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author, finish your faith. They know how they got there, and they want to see God glorified in our lives as we go through this life in faith. That's the dedicated life. Pressing on, getting rid of anything that hinder you for living for Christ. 
Well, there's a desire in verses 21 and 23. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is much better. See, most people want life without death, rather than life with death. See, instinctively in us, that natural desire of humans is to live and not die. And people choose life over death. Those who choose death over life usually choose it because they want relief. Relief from suffering. Relief from depression. But in Paul's case, it's much different. See, he determined where he wanted to live. And that's true of every one of us, in a sense. We choose. We choose where we want to rent or buy. We choose whether we want to live in the mountains or we want to live in the valleys. We want to live by the ocean. We want to live in Hawaii or we want to live someplace else. We choose. Apostle debated all the advantages and disadvantages of living on earth with living in heaven. And his approach toward death was unique for many. He says, my desire is to simply depart, to, to be with Christ. This reminds us when a Christian dies, they're immediately with Christ. To be absent the body is to be present with the Lord. Long before our bodies are even raised up. Now that word depart, it means to unloose, undo like a ship, like a sailboat that's unloose. It will begin to drift. Paul certainly understood ships because he had been on many ships and shipwrecked. He understand that loosening from the moorings. It also is used in the sense of breaking camp. And Paul was a tent maker, pulling up the pegs and, and, and moving on. And he knew that's what it was in this life because that's what you and I are created for, is to be with the Lord forever. That's where our home is. That's where our hope is. In 2 Corinthians 5.1, it says this, For we know that if this earthly tent, which is ours, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's the better thing. And let me tell you, the best is yet to come. He longed to be with the Lord, but yet he chose to Live in this life faithful until the last moment. Notice with me the duty, though, in verses 24 through 26. Yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know I still remain and continue with all of your progress and joy and faith, so that your proud confidence in me may be bound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. No sooner in Paul it, it, it said that death was gained, he turns back once more to those that are who are still in charge. In a few brief words, he acknowledges that if God's wisdom, he remains in this life, it's needful. He knows it. He says, I'm convinced. I know I'll remain. He was content to remain until the Lord called him to take him home. So it must be with us that we must lift our minds to contemplate the really the joys of heaven. But if we see them rightly, we'll turn back once more, once more to those whom our life in Christ, our witness, are so needful. Philippians one twenty one said this for for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is a real valuable test. Think with me for a second. Fill in the blanks and follow. For to me, to live is, 
And to die is what? Paul had said, for, for me to live is Christ. And die is gain. Some could fill in the blanks for me to, to, to live is money. And to die is to leave it behind. Over to me, to live is fame. And to die is to be forgotten. For to me, to live is power. And to die is to lose it all. Paul faced, though, his prospects as one who is married, one who is dedicated. Even to him who is risen from the dead, he was united with Christ for better or worse, for richer or poor, for sickness or health, freedom in prison, for a life down here or a life over there. Out of that union must come the fruit unto God and Paul's life and the life of others. I'd like to finish with an illustration. It looked like Stella would be alone for Christmas. Her husband had died of cancer a few months before. Now she was snowed in and she decided not to bother with the decorating the house. And late that afternoon, the doorbell rang. It was a delivery boy with a box. And he asked her to sign the package. And after she did, she asked, what's in the box? And the young boy opened the box, and inside was a, a little puppy, a golden Labrador retriever. The delivery boy picked up the squirming puppy and said, this is for you, ma'am. He's six weeks old. He's completely housebroken. Who sent this? Stella asked. The young man set the animal down and handed her envelope and said, It's all explained here, ma'am. The dog was bought last July, but its mother was still pregnant. It was meant to be a Christmas gift to you. And the young man then handed her book, How to Care for Your Labrador Retriever. And she asked again, Who, who sent this puppy? And the young man turned to leave, and he said, Your husband, ma'am. Merry Christmas. She opened the letter from her husband. He had written it three weeks before he had died. He left it with the kennel owners to be delivered uh, with the puppy at Christmas. And her husband admonished her to be strong and said that he'd be waiting for her for the day that she would join him. He'd sent her sent her this young animal to keep her company until then. She picked up the golden furry ball held to her neck, and then she looked out the window at the lights that outlined the neighbor's house. And suddenly she felt most amazing sensation of peace, her heartfelt wonder greater than the grief and loneliness. She turned little fellow, she said to the dog, it's just you and me. But you know what? There's there's a box down in the basement that's got a little Christmas tree in it. Some decorations, some lights that are going to impress you. There's a manger scene there. Let's go get it. God has a way of sending signals to remind us that life is stronger than death. A light more powerful than darkness. We're to open the book and reach for the joy. Just as this woman had a husband who had passed away, had gone to be in heaven, you and I have a husband. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming back for his bride. He too has left us a present. He's left us his Holy Spirit to comfort, to encourage, to push us down that road, to keep living a life of joy until he comes back for us. Lord Jesus, thank you. Why the words at times are difficult in your word, we know they are life and truth. 
They remind us of the hope that we have that you are coming and coming again for us soon. Give us faithful hearts. Lavish us with your grace. Give us opportunities to put the gospel back into Christmas. The good news of Jesus Christ. Help us this Christmas season as we turn really to be thankful for you have done much for us as a people. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.